Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. And talk about joint service. A member of the Space Force has become the first Guardian to receive a service medal from the Coast Guard. The Guardian spent three weeks aboard the Coast Guard Cutter Healy in the Arctic. It's cold up there. For more on exactly what he was doing, that Guardian, Captain Henry Cho, talked with Tom Tenen. So I was there to monitor our experiment. So the Coast Guard offers slots on the Coast Guard Cutter Healy, that's the ship's name, to conduct experiments on board. And part of their primary mission is to do science along with diving and rescue qualifications. So they regularly host scientist parties. So we were just one of those parties. There were other researchers from NASA Naval Research Lab, also John Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. So our experiment was ionospheric sounder. So we made measurements off of the ionosphere, which is an atmosphere layer that contains ions and electrons. We used an active antenna to transmit up and then another antenna to measure the return signal. And that measures the strength of the ionosphere. And the reason that we care about it is because the ionosphere has radio properties meaning we can bounce radio signals off of it. So that's relevant for communications, for both ground communications, so radio, but also space communications like SATCOM and GPS. Right, so Space Force has dominion over the satellites, and you want to make sure the signals can get through all of the atmosphere, including the ionosphere then. Right, so because ionosphere has both the properties of electrons where you can bounce radio signals, it also introduces delay for like satellite communications. So we want to account for that. And part of the research that we're doing is to make measurements of the atmosphere to know when it's stronger, or when it's weaker. And this can't be done via satellite, looking at it from the top instead of the bottom? No. So we don't know about how strong the atmosphere is in the Arctic region. And that's one of the reasons why we were on board the cutter to make measurements of the atmosphere. And is the polar zone important because of the way the satellites orbit? Well, the polar region is important for a number of reasons. One of it is like for polar orbits. Another reason is because of climate change and how the polar ice caps are melting, there's increased activity up in the polar region. And so we're also interested in monitoring that region. Right, because Russia and everybody else is prowling around there, too, in the United States needs to have a strategic presence and a, uh, and a reliable one, I guess, too, in the Arctic. Fair to say? Right. There is increased activity from both Russia and China, both military and commercial. And for the Space Force, you specialize in atmospheric characterization generally, correct? Right. So I'm assigned to uh, Kirtland Air Force Base as a researcher, and a lot of the experiments that we run here is for atmospheric characterization so we're looking at making measurements, not just the atmosphere, but also like the weather, both terrestrial and space weather. So how solar activity affects the atmosphere. So we're looking at both the atmosphere based on terrestrial and space weather. We're speaking with Captain Henry Cho of the Space Force. And tell us about life on the cutter in the Arctic. These are not tiny little boats. They're good-sized ships. What was life like aboard there? This was a Coast Guard Cutter Healy, which is, I believe, was one of their larger ships, but relatively to naval ships, I think it's relatively small. But life is generally very simple on board a cutter. Uh, you sort of just wake up, and so my duties were just to monitor and make sure our experiment was running okay. 
And that takes about really about 30 minutes out of my day. And so most of your time is really just keeping up with your health because the demands of going out into the Arctic, both living in an enclosed area and then living, working, sleeping in an enclosed area where both like mold and bacteria might work or the food progressively gets worse because all the fresh food runs out in the first half and then the second half you're eating like processed and frozen foods. And then on top of that, some nights you don't get a good night's sleep because of heavy waters of the and the rocking of the boat. And also there's a foghorn that goes off like every 30 seconds to alert other ships to make sure that there's no collisions. Yeah, sounds like a total joy aboard the Coast Guard cutter. <laughs> but otherwise, the Coast Guard people were accommodating for you with a sister force, you might say. Right, yeah. They regularly do these science missions. So I think it can host up to 50 scientists. And so there are a lot of other governments and commercial partners that they offer seats to. But yeah, they do this all the time. They understand like the demands of like be on board. So they certainly make time for people to get their sleep in and yeah. Is there a treadmill and a set of weight room and that kind of thing on there? Yes, there is, I guess, two gyms on board. But interesting thing about treadmill is on like the ship, essentially the floor is always moving because of the, the heavy waters. And so like running on a treadmill is, is very interesting because you have to also balance yourself with the rocking waters. Yeah, I've done it. It's even worse trying to stand on a BOSU ball and balance things when you're on a ship that's rocking in the ocean. Well, tell us about your career, how you came to be an atmospheric characterization specialist. That's my word, not yours. So I commissioned into the Air Force in 2016 for officer training school, and that was after college. I did an undergrad in aerospace engineering, and I was picked up as an engineer to be in the Air Force. My first assignment was at the GPS program office, so that was overseeing production of GPS satellites. And then after that, I was picked up for graduate school at the Air Force Institute of Technology, and there I earned an engineering master's in electrical engineering. And then that was also the assignment that I transferred into the Space Force, just because I had a strong space background that it made sense to transfer over. And then now I'm stationed here at Air Force Research Lab, and I work as a researcher. My career field they essentially grow either program managers or technical talent, and I tend to lean on the technical side of things. So that's how I ended up in this position. And where will you have to go next on the surface to be able to uh, measure the atmosphere? Well, right now we, uh, we're debating on whether we do another experiment again on Coast Guard Cutter Healy, and we're not entirely sure like what different thing we would do because we don't want to collect the same data over again. So we're discussing whether we would do the same trip again and what we would do differently. Sure. And this time you would bring a fresh crate of oranges, all of your own, I suppose. The voyage was about 40 days. And yeah, I, I suppose, yeah, it, it would last. <laughs> <laughs> but you did get a medal from the Coast Guard or from the Space Force? So it is a Coast Guard medal. I was looking for it in the shop here at Kirtland, and they don't offer it. So I'm glad to have the metal up in the Coast Guard base up in Alaska. Yeah, well, maybe mm. next time you'll uh, cruise the Caribbean. Right, yeah. I mean, the cutter does go in different parts of the world. I'm not sure if they would actually go through the Caribbean and maybe through the Panama Canal. Well, that yeah. would be a trip, too, I guess. Space Force Captain Henry Cho is a recipient of the Coast Guard Arctic Service Medal. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And take the Federal Drive anywhere. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across 
org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture, because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's gotta be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.